Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. I'm here with Julia Malkina, also a partner in our litigation group and in the Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Today, we're continuing our series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, which is our summary of the decisions from this past term that are most relevant to businesses. You can find the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all of our podcast episodes once they're released, on SNC's website at www.silcrom.com. In this episode, we are joined by our partner, Renata Hesse, co-head of the firm's antitrust group and the former acting assistant attorney general of the DOJ Antitrust Division, to discuss one of the Supreme Court's decisions from last term in the antitrust space, NCAA versus Alston. Thanks for joining us, Renata. So in NCAA, the Supreme Court considered whether certain NCAA restrictions on the types of benefits that student athletes may receive violate federal antitrust law. I think we should turn right to the expert for this one. So Renata, could you talk a little bit about the context behind the case? Certainly. Thanks, Jed. In the NCAA, the court struck down rules prohibiting the NCAA's members, over a thousand colleges and universities, from providing certain what they called education-related benefits to student athletes, such as scholarships for graduate school or vocational school, payments for academic tutoring, and paid post-athletic eligibility internships. The NCAA has long opposed student athletes receiving compensation for their participation in college sports, but has also long authorized colleges and universities to provide scholarships to student athletes. In recent years, while still maintaining that core prohibition on compensation, the NCAA has substantially relaxed many other restrictions on the types of benefits that student athletes may receive. Following the NCAA Supreme Court decision, however, those compensations restrictions may be on increasingly tenuous ground. You mentioned rules restricting education-related benefits. Why didn't NCAA address the broader compensation restrictions that the NCAA imposes on its member schools? That's a really good question, Julia. The Supreme Court's ruling was actually rather narrow, as it held only that the education-related benefit restrictions violated Section 1 of the Sherman Act which prohibits anti-competitive agreements that impose an undue restraint on trade or commerce. The case, which was brought by current and former student athletes in the top men's football and men's and women's basketball divisions of the NCAA, originally challenged all of the NCAA's compensation restrictions. However, the trial court overturned only the education-related benefit restrictions. This led to the interesting result that both the student athletes and the NCAA appealed to the Ninth Circuit, with the student athletes arguing that the trial court didn't go far enough because it left in place any restrictions, and the NCAA arguing that the trial court had gone too far by weakening its existing restrictions in any respect. After the Ninth Circuit upheld the trial court's decision in full, only the NCAA sought further review at the Supreme Court. As a consequence, the Supreme Court was considering only the rules restricting education-related benefits that were struck down by the trial court, not the compensation rules in their entirety. 
That is an interesting procedural posture, Renata. Could you walk us through some of the court's reasoning in striking down these rules? Absolutely. As a bit of background, outside of certain what are called per se violations of the Sherman Act, when determining whether an agreement imposes an illegal undue restraint on trade, courts apply what is known as a rule of reason analysis. A rule of reason analysis requires a fact-specific assessment to determine a challenge restraint's actual effect on competition. At the outset, Justice Gorsuch, writing for a unanimous court, noted that the case involved admitted horizontal price fixing in a market where the NCAA exerted monopoly control, and that the NCAA could seek to justify its restraints in the labor market by relying on pro-competitive effects in the consumer market. With that framing, the Supreme Court first concluded that the trial court had properly subjected the NCAA's compensation restrictions to a rule of reason analysis. First, the court rejected the NCAA's argument that, as a joint venture of its member colleges and universities, it should be subjected to a less rigorous so-called quick-look review. Second, the court also rejected the NCAA's argument that a 1980s Supreme Court decision, which rejected the NCAA's rules restricting its member schools' ability to televise football games, somehow endorsed its limits on student-athlete compensations. The court noted that while a passing reference may suggest that courts should take care when assessing the NCAA's restrictions, the student-athlete compensation rules were not at issue in the 1984 decision, and the market realities in college sports had vastly changed in the intervening decades. Third, the court rejected the NCAA's position that it could avoid a rule of reason analysis because its rules were allegedly supporting the societally important objective of promoting higher education. If the NCAA should be exempt from the ordinary operation of the Sherman Act, the court reasoned, it's Congress that should make that call, not the judiciary. Having determined that the rule of reason analysis properly governed the NCAA's restrictions on education-related benefits, the court held that under that analysis, the restrictions violated Section 1 of the Sherman Act. Thanks for that, Renata. So the court applies the rule of reason analysis despite the NCAA's objections. Could you walk us through a bit of how the court worked through that analysis? Absolutely. The court referred back to its 2018 Ohio versus American Express decision, which described a three-step burden-shifting framework for applying the rule of reason to, quote, distinguish between restraints with any competitive effect that are harmful to the consumer and restraints stimulating competition that are in the consumer's best interest. Now, the court cautioned that the MX framework isn't just a checklist, it held that the trial court had correctly adhered to a similar framework. Under the Amex framework, the plaintiff must initially prove that a restraint has a substantial anti-competitive effect. Then the burden shifts to the defendant to show that there is a pro-competitive rationale for that restraint. If the defendant is able to carry that burden, the burden then shifts back to the plaintiff to demonstrate the pro-competitive efficiencies could be reasonably achieved through less anti-competitive means. Interestingly, while the vast majority of claims subjected to a, quote, rule of reason analysis fail at the first step, the NCAA did not meaningfully dispute that its restraints were anti-competitive. 
The NCAA's restrictions therefore failed because while it arguably put forward some pro-competitive justifications, the trial court had correctly held that the student athletes established that the NCAA could achieve those pro-competitive objectives with substantially less restrictive restraints on education-related benefits. As I mentioned earlier, the decision was fairly narrow in that it didn't reach the compensation restrictions as a whole. So the court's opinion here was limited to just the education-related benefits, which obviously raises some questions about what might be next. What do you see as the important broader implications for the NCAA and maybe more broadly in antitrust analysis? An interesting question. First, specific to the NCAA, the court signaled a willingness to look more broadly at the NCAA and its restrictions on student-athlete compensation. Justice Kavanaugh, for example, who wrote a separate concurring opinion in addition to joining the court's opinion in full, emphasized that the NCAA's remaining compensation rules also raise serious questions under the antitrust laws. Indeed, the week after the court's decision and facing significant pressure from state legislatures and additional likely litigation, the NCAA announced that it would begin allowing student athletes to profit off their names, likeness, and images. More broadly, the court also appeared to adopt a more defendant-friendly general standard for assessing the legality of joint ventures that would increase a plaintiff's burden of proof when challenging joint ventures under federal antitrust law. While the Amex decision framed the third step as requiring the plaintiff to show that the pre-competitive efficiencies could be reasonably achieved through less anti-competitive means, the court in the NCAA case appeared to add a substantiality threshold and require that the plaintiff show that the efficiencies could be achieved through substantially less restrictive restraints. This change in the standard may make it more difficult for joint venture activity to generate antitrust liability. Thanks very much, Renata. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Mm-hmm.